I'm reading very familiar words. I invite you to follow along if you care to. I'm in the book of Psalms in number 23. Beautiful and familiar words that I would imagine most of us could recite from memory, in which David, a man who was a king as an adult, but a shepherd as a boy, said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul and leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This last week I noticed three signs in front of churches, and my reaction to them was, was very, very different. Before one church, not too far away from where we have gathered for worship, I saw a sign that said something like this, the first time that God saw your face, it was love at first sight. A slogan kind of thing that fits well into the degeneration of the gospel that is taking place in our time and has God just utterly fascinated with man rather than instructing man to be utterly fascinated with God. And then I saw another one, and I wish I'd thought of it, because it said, Jesus paid the price. You keep the change. Isn't that beautiful? And then another one had the very pedestrian but very true words that America was founded on Christian principles. We're living in a time in which people who ought to know better are denying that. Increasingly, people who claim positions of intellectual leadership in our nation are telling us that Christianity had very little with the founding of this nation, and they want to trace its philosophical roots to sources other than the religion of our Lord Jesus Christ. But for those of us who are very acquainted with our history, we understand that this is not true. As Christians, we delight in reading our history and quotations from its greatest people because on their lips we find expressions of Christian principle and very often we find passages of Scripture either quoted directly or at least paraphrased and applied to the issues they faced in their time. This nation was founded on principles derived from the religion of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. The bad news is that because of the influence of the Christian religion in our culture, there are still many, many people in our culture who claim for themselves the blessings and the promises of that faith while having nothing to do with that faith itself. I see this often when I'm talking with families in funeral homes. I will sit with families among whom there is no visible or audible evidence of faith. There is no participation in the worship of God. When I ask them about passages of scripture that the person who died or they might find comforting, they have nothing to say, unless they choose the words that I read just a moment ago. As if the relationship that it declares and the blessings it celebrates 
belong as much to those who have nothing to do with our faith as those who take our faith very, very seriously. And for that reason, for some time, when I've read those words at a funeral, I've introduced them with words something like this. I want to tell you something about the man who wrote these words. He was a king and he was a shepherd, I will tell them. But I will also say that he was a man who believed in God. And I will add to that that when I say David believed in God, I do not mean what too many mean about themselves in this enlightened age in which we live that he merely acknowledged the existence or the possibility of the existence of a supreme being, as if that is all that the God who made us for his own purposes and fellowship is entitled to expect from us. I will tell them if they didn't know and remind them if they did that David was a man who not only believed in the existence of God, but a man who practiced the presence of God. In his public life, he was a man of faithful worship And in his private life, he was a man of devoted prayer. He was a man whose deepest longing was that in the divine record of his life, something beautiful and useful to God might be discovered. And then I will tell them that to the extent that that describes our faith, then these most certainly are our words. I presume that you're coming through the doors of this church this morning means that you are a Christian, that you are a person who takes your faith in Jesus Christ seriously. And that means then that this beautiful expression of peace and hope that come first from the heart and then from the pen of David belong indeed as much to us as they did to him. And in fact, a little more so because we know something that David could not be expected to know. We know the name of the Lord who is our shepherd. His name is Jesus. I'd like to consider these beautiful and familiar words with you. It begins with a statement of the thoroughness of the Lord's provision for us. Verses 1 and 2 deal with his satisfying the needs of the flesh, and verse 3 deals with his meeting the needs of the spirit. Green pastures, Still waters encompass pretty much all that a sheep requires for sustenance. We understand that by leading his flock to lush pastures and by keeping them away from harmful plants and by guiding them to those quiet waters where a sheep will rest and drink and avoiding turbulent streams that frighten them, the shepherd indicates that he knows the needs of his charges even better than they know their needs themselves and fully provides for them. And the implications of David's words are that this is how God knows us in Christ and how God in Christ cares for us. In the sixth chapter of Matthew, our Lord, who called himself the Good Shepherd, speaks in very similar tones. He said to a crowd of people worried about their lives, what they would eat and what they would wear. Look at the birds of the air, he said. Consider the lilies of the field and learn lessons of the fullness of the providence of God from these beautiful, ordinary, simple things that surround you in your daily life. The 23rd Psalm tells us that when sheep faithfully obey their shepherd and when Christian people trust their savior in all things, the result is richness of life and peace in heart. 
Verse 3 is a little piece of ancient poetry that contains marvelous Christian theology. It's easy to miss because we read these words as poetry and very little more than that. In Reformed theology, there are two words that pretty much sum up the sum total of our relationship with God and his activity in our lives. They are the words regeneration and sanctification. Regeneration is the new birth. It is that sudden, instantaneous transformation of the human soul from death unto life. It is the happy awakening of the human spirit from a state of rebellion and indifference to the things of God to one of eager recognition and reception of these same things. And the Bible teaches that this is the work of God in its entirety. Faith is not its cause. Faith is its result. <coughs> Sanctification is that process by which the Spirit and the Word of God goad us and enable us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It begins at regeneration and will end only at the instant of death when our eyes close to the earth and open to gaze upon the beautiful face of the one who has redeemed us. Sanctification is primarily the work of the Holy Spirit, but it requires our cooperation but even that cooperation is prompted by that same spirit. Please notice with me how regeneration and sanctification are set forth in verse 3 of the 23rd Psalm, where David said, He restores my soul, and he writes, He leads me in paths of righteousness. And the end of verse 3 is significant for us in this age in which we live. Because it is a verse that reminds us that all of this that God has done for us, satisfying the needs of the flesh, meeting the requirements of the soul, are done entirely for his name's sake. We're living in an age in which man is made the focus of the gospel. In many churches and in many ministries, the message is that God is intensely fascinated by you. God has a deep interest in you. When God wakes up in the morning, his first thought is, what can I do for that person today to help him achieve his goals and succeed happiness as he defines happiness? This is the message that stands behind the first time God saw your face. It was love at first sight, as if God didn't know you and me before we were conceived or born an almost blasphemous suggestion about the nature of the God that we've gathered to praise. David said that God has done all of this for me, not principally for my sake, but principally for his sake. And he is to be praised, and he is to be served, and he is to be glorified. Verse 4 is the reason that many choose this particular psalm to be read at a funeral. It's the familiar, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. This verse is probably not about death. In fact, a sheep would be incapable of imagining death. But it's probably about any dark and threatening time in life where 
predators might lurk in the shadows. And what do we find at the floor of a valley, particularly in mountainous regions of the earth like Palestine, but a stream, not a placid stream, but turbulent, mists rising like clouds from its rapids and falls, its roaring amplified by the sides of the curtain. It is a trout fisherman's dream. It is a sheep's nightmare. And in such a setting, David imagined himself. But he says, I will fear no evil. Note, David does not say, I will not be afraid at all. He says simply, I will fear no evil. Not long ago, we dealt with those anxieties that are common to our fallen nature. Anxieties that as Christians, we cannot entirely avoid but we must try to apply our faith to the circumstances that generate those anxieties in the hope and with the prayer that they will not become the terror and the panic that God will always shield us from. David claims no perfect peace in the valley, but says he fears no evil in that place. Evil is anything that is contrary to the perfect will of our God. So in effect, David, waxing more philosophical than one would expect of a sheep, expresses his confidence that in the darkest of times and places, nothing outside the will of God will happen to him. And the worst thing that can happen is nothing but the will of God. It's as if David had already read, but certainly knew the glorious theology of Romans 28 where we have the promise of God himself that all things work together for the good of those who love God. And the source of David's ordered thoughts in the valley of the shadow of death is not his confidence in his own ability to deal with them. It is not some fatalistic philosophy that he has him wandering in the midst of temptation and trial humming sera to himself but rather it is the presence of the shepherd who is the Lord himself. In 1 Samuel 17, we find the minutes of a job interview. The one doing the interviewing is a king by the name of Saul. The one being interviewed is a shepherd boy by the name of David, and the job is to kill Goliath. And as a part of his interview with Saul, David says, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And if it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant, David said of himself, has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Later he would write, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What a wonderful thing it is for Christian people to know that on the brightest and most serene of our days and on the darkest of our nights, there is one who stands guard over us, one who never sleeps, one who is never distracted, one who is mightier than all of the forces of evil ever arrayed against us. 
And that one, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 5 and 6, the template changes. In the first four verses, Jesus has, or Peter has imagined, David, uh, according to more modern translations, represents himself as a sheep. In the last two verses, David becomes a man. And once again, he speaks of the fullness of the blessings of God, meeting the needs of the flesh and those of the soul. David, the man, imagines himself as the honored guest sitting at the table of a king, where he can't find the bottom of his cup. Here and elsewhere, the scriptures teach that God not only knows the needs of the righteous, but acts sovereignly and fully to meet them even before the righteous pray. In Isaiah 40, the prophet seems amazed that the people of God would complain, our God has forgotten us. And Jesus, in that same place in which he spoke of the birds and the lilies, says, your heavenly Father knows what you need even before you ask him. The promise of God is not that he will give us everything that we ask. His promises have little to do with the luxuries or even the extras of life, but rather with its essential requirements. And it was probably with this understanding in mind that David would later compose these words, I have been young, but now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. And notice in this psalm that the table is spread in the presence of my enemies. Earlier in that fourth verse, God did not flatten the valley or make the valley go away. But instead, he walked with his people through that valley. And here in this verse, God does not vanquish our enemies, prepares for us a table in the very presence of our enemies. We often shriek in our prayers, take it away, take it away. When we ought to pray, Lord, give me the grace and the strength to face, to accept, to deal with whatever you send my way. In each case, God is present. His rod and his staff visible to the flock, his supply filling our cups. What more could we ask in the midst of trouble than the benevolent, powerful presence of our Savior? David depicts the thoroughness of the Lord's provision for the flesh and then turns his attention to the spirit. When dealing with the needs of the flesh, he speaks of the table and the oil and the cup. And then he attends his attention to the needs of the soul. And he writes of his confidence that goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. It's important for us to take note of the fact that in the inspired poetry of David, that goodness and mercy are linked the Bible speaks to us of the Lord's goodness, of his loving kindness, of his love. And these properties are all pretty much the same. It is the goodness of the Lord that inclines him to be generous and kind in his dealings with all people, and especially to those who belong to him by faith. It is his goodness that causes our cupboards never to become bare, that assures us of his presence in the worst of circumstances 
that leads him to prepare that table before us in the presence of our enemies. But the linking of goodness and mercy reminds us that none of the blessings of God are ours because of our goodness or our deservedness of those blessings. It is because of his goodness linked to his mercy. The better we know ourselves in Christ, the more surprised we are at the goodness of God. The better we understand the gospel, the more assured we become that he does not treat us as we deserve to be treated, but according to his goodness and mercy, and how greatly we need that mercy. David was the undeserving recipient of the mercy of the Lord and rejoiced because of it. You and I are the undeserving recipients of that same mercy. May we be found rejoicing as well. Forgive us our debts. According to the Lord, the Good Shepherd is to be a part of the daily prayers of everyone who names the name of Jesus Christ. The psalm closes with another declaration of Reformed doctrine. David said, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Note the confidence of his declaration. He does not say, as we hear too many Christians say, I hope to go to heaven when I die. A Christian will say, I hope that between now and the day of my death, I can avoid those pitfalls and those temptations that await me in order that on the day of my death, I might be found acceptable to God. There is no doubt in the mind of David at all. He simply says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If you believe that Jesus made the down payment on your redemption, but you have to work off the rest of your debt yourself, then it's no wonder that you're not sure of your salvation. If you believe that your salvation depends on your good works and you know yourself well enough to question your own faithfulness, then it's to be expected that you can't claim with confidence heaven as your eternal home. But if you believe that salvation is entirely the work of God, that Jesus paid the full price of your redemption, then you should be able to say with David, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Finally, I'd like to consider with you the metamorphosis that takes place in the identities that David assumes for himself in this beautiful psalm. In the first four verses of the psalm, he sees himself as a sheep. In the last two verses, he is a man. There are other changes like this that we notice as we read through the scriptures. In Genesis, for example, Joseph the jailbird becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man. In Esther, Haman, who planned to be the hangman, becomes the hangee. In Acts, Saul, the persecutor of believers, becomes a persecuted Christian. In the incarnation, the Son of God became the Son of Man. And in the Gospels, Jesus Christ, the high priest of our faith, became the lamb sacrificed for the sins of the world. A very similar metamorphosis is yours and mine in Jesus Christ. Peter writes of it 
in his first letter in the second chapter, where he says to Christian people, once you were no people at all, but now by grace you are the people of God. Once you were strangers to mercy, but are now marked and cleansed by mercy. Once you lived in a great darkness, but God has called you into his own marvelous light. Which means that now by the goodness and the mercy of the Lord, we are able to stand in the presence of the Lord and with David to rejoice as we proclaim, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Let us pray. Our Father, we are so very grateful that you have called us into such a relationship with yourself through Jesus Christ. We thank you for the mercy and the goodness that mark our way, for the life that is now within us, for the absolute confidence of eternal glory that stands before us as we walk through the twisting days of our lives upon the earth. In these words, there is joy, there is hope, there is peace. May all of these things be ours in the darkness of the time in which we live. We pray in Jesus' name.